Hello, and welcome to the JSGC Policy Podcast, where we research policy issues that matter to the people in Pennsylvania. Today's conversation is part of an ongoing dialogue about diabetes. Thanks for joining us. I'm Susan Elder. Today, I'm here with our executive director, Glenn Pasowitz. Hello, Susan. And also Brian DeWalt, who is our sound engineer and co-host. Hello, everyone. We are joined by Helen Congena, who is the project manager for the Diabetes Report. Welcome, Helen. I am so glad that you could join us today. Hello. I'm glad to be with you. So before we start into some of our questions about the report. Glenn, could you give us a little bit of background about this issue? Sure. This is the sixth report issued at the direction of House Resolution 936 of 2014. It was sponsored by Representative Donna Oberlander on the subject of diabetes in Pennsylvania. And uh, by way of background, we had met with representatives from the American Diabetes Association at the start of the very first report that we had done, is they had been working with other states that were doing similar reports. And the purpose was then and remains to provide a profile of diabetes in Pennsylvania, who is affected and what's being done about it by government agencies, advocates, the medical profession, and the patients themselves. This current report addresses three significant developments since the last biennial report, That include new screening guidelines for type 1 diabetes, new medications for type 1 diabetes, and an expanded use of an insulin pump. So these developments, along with more information, will be discussed throughout today's episode. Thank you, Glenn. Helen, since the last report, what are some of the biggest changes in diabetes policy that you came across? What has been happening is basically expansion on some policies that have already been in use. Also, as Glenn mentioned, there are some encouraging new approaches that the states will need to take into account. I would say that the emphasis in this report is on further expansion of prevention programs, both the programs themselves and access to them. There's more attention to multicultural health evaluation and delivery system, which is certainly a progressive development. There's also more accent on social determinants of health. It's a national trend, and it is certainly reflected here in Pennsylvania. And social determinants of health are economic status of a patient, his ability to afford his medications, his house conditions that may affect his general health. There have also been more attention to diversified care dependent on the age of the patient. There has been much more attention to gestational diabetes because it has been shown more and more clearly that diabetes in Pregnant mothers can have long-term deleterious effects on both mother's health and baby's health. And there's more and more information about the breadth and the extent of this long-term as well as short-term damage. So there has been a change in policy with regard to pregnant women. Thank you, Helen. 
Did you see changes in diabetes population and incidence, any trends along the lines of public health? Regrettably, these trends are not encouraging. I can give you some general numbers. Total number of diabetes cases in Pennsylvania is 1.2 million. New diabetes incidence is 68.1 thousand. Unfortunately, the numbers are not really going down. The analysis of trends in prevalence of diabetes in the United States demonstrates that during the years of 2001-2020, the age-adjusted prevalence of total diabetes significantly increased among adults aged 18 or older. Prevalence estimates for total diabetes were 10.3% in 2001-2004 and 13.2% in 2017-2020. By the way, it regards both diabetes type 1 and type 2. Among children and adolescents, the trends are also worrisome. Among the United States children and adolescents aged less than 20 for the period 2002-2015, Overall incidence of type 1 diabetes significantly increased, and among the United States children and adolescents aged 10 to 19 years, type 2 overall incidence significantly increased as well. I would say when we're talking about what over a million people, 68,000 with the new incidence, this affects a huge number of people, but I would say it probably affects, in a way, many more. Do you have any figures that illustrate what the financial impact of diabetes is in Pennsylvania? Oh, yes, Glenn, you are quite right. Of course, diabetes is not only a very burdensome disease changing the lives of people in many ways, but it has a severe financial burden as well, both for individual patients, by the way, whose medical expenses are much higher than those of people who have no diabetes, and for the states and insurance companies and the society at large. In Pennsylvania, direct medical costs attributed to diabetes are $9.3 billion, and indirect costs attributed to diabetes are estimated as $3.5 billion. With cases going up, as well as the growing expense of medical care, the financial burden of diabetes is only expected to rise significantly. And I'd like to mention one factor that can impact it, which is COVID. COVID and diabetes is a very painful subject, as we have shown in one of our previous reports It has been shown very clearly that the combination of COVID and diabetes is really extremely dangerous. They both seem to exacerbate each other. Now, a couple of years after the height of the pandemic, it's becoming clearer that COVID not only exacerbates the condition of people who already have diabetes, But there have been multiple international reports of increased occurrence of diabetes following COVID-19. Summarizing the findings of numerous investigations, 
it becomes clear, and that comes from a meta-analysis of reports, there has been an overall 66 increase in the incidence of new-onset diabetes following COVID infection. Recently, there has been an extensive cohort study conducted in Canada, and it showed severe increase in getting new diabetes after someone has had COVID. Commenting on the Canadian study, a United States public health expert observes, if this proportion is similar in the United States, it will represent a substantial financial burden. In 2017, the cost of diabetes care was estimated at $237 billion, not including lost productivity. So a 5% increase would cost an additional $12 billion per year. Now, six years later, the cost is probably much greater. In addition, that Canadian study studied only adults, but the United States children also had an increased incidence of diabetes following COVID-19. So according to this public health expert, the length of time that these increased costs will accumulate will be even greater. Thanks for sharing, Helen. Those are staggering figures. It it is indeed. Helen, when looking through the report, I noticed that health, human services, and aging each have a chapter in the report. So I was wondering if you could broadly explain for our listeners what their role is in diabetes prevention and treatment. Yes, the leading agency in supervising programs aimed at prevention and management of diabetes is naturally the Pennsylvania Department of Health. Most of the Commonwealth's diabetes programs are centralized within the Department of Health to ensure that statewide efforts are coordinated. Our report contains detailed information on two major programs currently administered by DOH, Diabetes Prevention Program, DPP, and Diabetes Self-Management Education and Support Program, DSMES. The report also contains an update on type 1 diabetes activity and funding allocation, as well as an overview of obesity as a significant risk factor of type 2 diabetes. I must say that the Pennsylvania Department of Education pays a lot of attention to chronic diseases, It has successfully applied for many federal programs that help to care about people with diabetes in Pennsylvania. It's a major effort, and the department has been proactive and very successful with that. As for the Department of Aging, it has been also very active and really very enthusiastic about helping elderly Pennsylvanians with diabetes. And you know, diabetes is especially common in older people. Mostly handles two programs, chronic disease self-management program and diabetes self-management program. And it is done within their health and wellness program. The Department of Human Services mostly deals with Medicaid. The report contains basic information about the type of screening that Medicaid provides and some general information about the activity aimed at expanding diabetes prevention program, which are now required for each MCO 
Helen, as you were doing your research for the report, how do nonprofits and the advocacy groups factor into diabetes treatment and research? Nonprofit groups are certainly very helpful. They are doing a lot. In each of our reports, we try to highlight some new programs, new initiatives, new nonprofit organizations, as well as other organizations who seem to be successfully working in this area. In this particular report, we offer information not only on YMCA that has always been present in our reports, as they do a lot for prevention, but we also have more information about the Health Promotion Council, HBC, is one of the key partners in diabetes prevention and management in Pennsylvania. They work very closely with the Pennsylvania Department of Health, and they also work very closely with local organizations. Another nonprofit that is highlighted in this report is Latino Connection, who runs one of the most successful diabetes prevention and self-management programs targeting a highly affected and formerly underserved population group in Pennsylvania. Latino Connection is a social determinants of health marketing and education agency. It is considered a national leader in community education and health outreach. In Pennsylvania, Latino Connection is especially active in counties that have high percentage of Latinos. They have been extremely active and inventive in reaching the population. You know that Latino population generally has higher levels of diabetes type 2 than some other groups. So reaching out to them is very important. And Latino Connection really tries to find people where they are. This is really their motto. And they run their programs in places where people are visiting, such as retail locations, corner stores, bodegas, health centers, churches, and community centers to reach underserved, underinsured, and high-risk populations. They have bilingual community health workers who are fluent in Spanish and often have Spanish as their first language, which allows them to connect with community members. So this is a really interesting way to approach education and prevention for diabetes. As we're talking about how the groups help people with their prevention and their treatment for Everybody following along at home on page 77 of the report, the number one recommendation is about step therapy. So my question is, what is step therapy? Step therapy is one of the ways that insurance companies try to limit their own expenses. Before allowing a patient to take a particular medication or way of treatment, usually an innovative and expensive treatment or medication. Some insurance plans require the so-called step therapy, which means that a patient should first try another medication, not the one that his doctor thinks is preferable for him, but the one that costs less. 
And only after he proves that he or she cannot tolerate this medication or that they cannot reach desirable, in this case, glucose levels, only then would the insurance company allow them to take the medication the doctor prescribed in the first place. And of course, many patients and their advocates and clinicians are enraged by this approach because, as you can imagine, if you start with something that is less effective, it doesn't help your recovery or your health condition. When we are talking about something as important as diabetes, any extent of the period, say, when the patient stays with higher sugar levels while they could be lower on another one, or any extra case of hypoglycemic crisis that the patient has because the kind of insulin or another drug that he is given as part of this step therapy is not really suitable to him, all this really a disgraceful loss in many ways. What makes it even worse, that when people switch from one health plan to another health plan, a new health plan used to require them to go through these steps all over again, ignoring what has already been done by the previous plan, which really multiplies adverse consequences of this step therapy. So there is a lot of demand that this step therapy should not be allowed at all, or at least that it should not be repeated each time when a health plan is changed. Helen, it sounds like from reviewing the recommendations that there are also other things that insurers could do to advance diabetes treatment in Pennsylvania. This is certainly true. Frankly, there seems to be a kind of a controversy between the latest clinical recommendations and the insurance company's practices. For example, it is very well known that treatment for diabetes needs to be timely and continuous. It is very important that the patient with diabetes sticks with the medication he is supposed to take regularly. So the doctors encourage patients to check their sugar regularly, to take the medication as prescribed, but many patients do not do that. And one of the reasons they don't is because their insurance plans are not paying for the medication they need or require the step therapy that Glenn was just asking me, or the patient simply cannot afford the co-pays imposed on them for needles, for strips. So this is one way where insurance companies could be much more forthcoming which is why we recommend that healthcare plan treat insulin and essential equipment necessary for diabetes maintenance as preventive coverage so that it would require no copay. Of course, you are all aware of the huge scandal around insulin in the past few years that led to some changes at the federal level and at the state level. However, that limiting insulin prices to $35 a month for some categories of population, not all of them, that people were celebrating so much and there is reason to celebrate. It hasn't run as smoothly as expected because to my shock, 
some insurance plans found a very simple way to go around it. They just stop covering insulin-protected kinds at all. So they just took them off their formulary. They only left the kinds of insulin that are not protected by this federal limitation. So can you imagine not only people still can't get it, but they can't get it because it's not covered at all now. I just couldn't believe that such cynical steps could be taken by some health plans, but this is what happened, which is why in this case we are recommending not only expanding caps on out-of-pocket payment for insulin and other essential diabetes medications, but at the same time to limit healthcare plans' ability to eliminate their protective medications from their formulary. Switching from one kind of insulin to another is not an easy decision. It is very hard to find an insulin regimen that works for a particular patient without causing hypoglycemic crisis, without causing any other dangerous side effects. So if a doctor has been able to find a kind of insulin that works for a particular patient, it should not be changed just because an insurance company doesn't want to pay for this particular type or the patient cannot afford it. Oh my goodness, Helen. Thank you for explaining that for us because that's that's a little appalling. That's the word I would use, Susan. Yes, I agree. Can you tell us about new developments in diabetes treatments that have come up recently and are in this report? Yes, there have been some very, very encouraging changes, indeed groundbreaking changes, especially related to diabetes type 1. This is diabetes that usually comes up in children And that is why it is especially important to find ways of dealing with it. Diabetes type 1 was always considered incurable, and what the patients with type 1 need is insulin. It's just taking insulin because they cannot produce any insulin themselves. So what happened recently was really a breakthrough in many ways. There has been a new medication that has been shown to delay the onset of stage 3 type 1 diabetes. This is basically means the stage of type 1 where the patient starts experiencing severe symptoms and when he needs to start an insulin regimen. Just delaying the concept of stage three is a very significant achievement that can make a big difference in the lives of those who have type 1 diabetes and their families. It is especially clinically meaningful because type 1 diabetes often presents in patients younger than 10 years old who obviously face challenges with complex disease management. There are ongoing studies of how effective those new drugs can be. And there are even studies showing that this novel stem cell-derived dial cell therapy may show promise for achieving insulin independence for individuals with type 1 diabetes. This is just in the works. But even delaying its onset for 
months or even years is a big breakthrough. Another very promising development in this case is that new pump that really changes the so-called eyelid bionic pancreas that allows patients to have better control on their sugar levels and thus lead to a greater reduction in glycated hemoglobin. There are other promising developments, uh, especially in diabetes diabetic eye condition and glucose management. So for type 1 patients, these new developments are very, very promising. Helen, the last time we had an episode on diabetes, we discussed the role of telehealth. Mm -hmm. Has telehealth continued being a useful tool in diabetes treatment? And conversely, has there there been a resurgence of in-person events? There has certainly been a resurgence in in person visits and in person programs which were not possible during the COVID pandemic. But telehealth remains a useful tool, and nobody is talking about getting rid of it. On the contrary, uh, the positive outcome of all the adjustments that had to be made during the COVID pandemic is that there are more formats of presenting treatment or assessment or especially prevention education available now. Virtual programs such as, say, uh, diabetes management program, uh, prevention programs are very valuable, for example, for the elderly who can do it from the comfort of their home. And so this being the sixth report, I'm I'm just curious, how have the advocacy groups and the diabetes experts responded to the reports over the last few years? The response has been very, very positive. Sometimes I was actually asked to speak at the meetings of these groups. I usually present our reports to the Pennsylvania Diabetes Association Network. They're always very interested and we have very helpful conversations. A couple of times uh, I was even invited to speak at the national seminars dealing with this issue. So there is interest in our reports and they are welcome. Well, it's time for us to wrap up our conversation on the topic of diabetes. Helen, thank you so much for joining us today. You are very welcome. It was my pleasure. If you're listening and you would like to get more details about diabetes from Joint States Study, you'll find the link to that report in the show notes. The music in our podcast is provided by Joseph McDade. Thanks for listening and have a nice day. 